Welcome to the Idea Week podcast, where investors and entrepreneurs share their wisdom and insights into investing, business, and life. The Idea Week podcast is brought to you by MOI Global, the membership community of intelligent investors. Members of MOI Global enjoy special access to Idea Week, the annual winter summit that brings together investors and entrepreneurs in one-of-a-kind St. Moritz, Switzerland. And now, here is your host, John Mihaljevic. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the conversation Chris Mayer. Chris is uh, with Bonner and Partners. He uh, spent 11 years with Agora Financial previously, and uh, I've had the pleasure of meeting Chris in uh, Switzerland. And he's truly a great uh, value investor, thinker, as well as writer. And uh, Chris launched in April 2016, and uh, and and really is uh, kind of the brainchild behind the Bonner private portfolio, um, which maybe you can tell us a little bit more about, uh, Chris, uh, at the outset. And then uh, I'd like to uh, perhaps just touch a little bit on uh, the book that you are uh, quite famous for, uh, about a hundred baggers that uh, you've uncovered as a result of a study you did, and then we can also talk about a forthcoming book uh, that uh, you have called "How Do You Know?" So uh, that's that's quite a lot there. But uh, maybe first uh, a little bit of background on yourself and kind of what you've been up to for the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. Well, let's see. I do. Uh... I do uh, a few things. So my background is in corporate banking, and that's where I started my career after uh, college. And then I always had a passion for investing and writing, and I started my own newsletter in 2004. And the short story is uh, eventually made a deal there with Agora, and they marketed the letter. And then I wrote that for quite a while, as you say, about 11 or 12 years. And then I joined Bonner and Partners in 2016. And uh, there I I run a couple of research services. One is the Bonner Private Portfolio, which you mentioned. And we have about $6 million in a real money portfolio. uh, That's part of the family office money. And then uh, I write about and research stocks. And you can sort of invest alongside with the family office if you wish. Uh, and then the second a second newsletter I write is called uh, Chris Mayer's Focus, which is more based on small cap names, where I'm applying a lot of the lessons that I learned when I wrote the uh, book Hundred Baggers. So I do that, and and then uh, I help family offices in investing some of their other money. And then the third thing I do, as you mentioned, is I uh, write books every now and then. So I've written three, uh, last one being Hundred Baggers, and the new ones going to come out here soon, I hope in the next two, three months, is called How Do You Know? Great. Yeah. Um, maybe just uh, kind of touching on what you just mentioned, um, the Chris Mayer's focus, uh, your latest project um, being related to some of the lessons you took from the research on 100 baggers. Perhaps we could stay there for a moment and you could tell us a little bit about um, kind of the scope of that research, 
and then some of these some of the findings or the common traits that uh, hopefully you could uncover among companies that went on to become hundred baggers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, doing this uh, really changed the way I think about investing as well. So. I guess I started with, uh, there's a book called 100 to 1 in the Stock Market by Thomas Phelps. It came out in 1972. And I read that book in 2011 after hearing Chuck Ockray mention it in a speech he gave. And I really like that book. It's well written. It's got, it's very quotable. And I'd never heard of it before. And I like the idea of 100 baggers. So in my writing, I had started to quote from that book and talk about it and there was actually a reader who suggested to me, you know, you should update it because, uh, you know, it came out in 1972. So I thought that was a great idea. And uh, I updated the study looking at all the stocks that had returned at least 100 to 1 from 1962, which is as far back as I could get the reliable data, to uh, 2014, which is about where the book came out in 2015. And uh, I strained out some of the smallest stocks. So it doesn't include, you know, little resource stocks that junior miners that go from 25 cents to whatever. And I was trying to look for if there was something I could learn from this population of companies. And it was really interesting because uh, there were some things I didn't expect. Like there were really was no industry concentration. The companies were all over the place. It wasn't like it was dominated by tech firms per se, it was consumer companies or banks, or all kinds of businesses, railroads, everything to think of. And um, the patterns were harder to detect, but there were a few things that I learned that I think uh, are good to keep in mind when you want to hunt for these stocks that have this kind of potential to return, I don't know, 101 over a period of time. Uh, so, I would guess I would say the most important one um, is this ability to earn a high return on capital. And then the key part is the second part is also important. It's the ability to earn a high return on capital, but also the ability to then reinvest and continue to earn that high return capital over time. So that alone uh, can create a very nice engine over time. And it's just math, right? If you, if you compound at 20% a year for 25, 26 years, that's Hunter Bagger. And so that sort of gives you the scope of what, what's required. And of course, what I always tell people is it's not necessarily that you're going to go out and get the Hunter Bagger, but I mean, you, know, you learn what these powerful engines are that drove these stock prices and you can look for them. I'm sure lots of people would be happy if they uncovered something that went up fivefold. You know what I mean? So... <clears throat> There's that. I think that's probably the most important thing. And the second trait I think as that came out of it, and this is not universal, but I think it's there were enough examples where I think it's important, and that is to have a powerful personality and entrepreneur behind it. So a lot of the stocks that became these huge winners have a readily identifiable name behind them. So if you think of Sam Walton. You know, you think of Walmart, you think of, uh, you know, Charles Schwab, created Charles Schwab and Steve Jobs behind Apple. And, uh, Ray Kroc, Ray Kroc drove McDonald's. There's all these kinds of tie-ins. 
And so those two alone, I think if you just did those two, I think that would help your investing enormously. So you focus on businesses that return a high return on capital, not only presently, but prospectively. So you might invest in something where uh, maybe it doesn't necessarily have a huge high return on capital now, but within a couple of years, you could see it becoming a high return business and importantly has the ability to reinvest and continue to do it. And one where you have a strong insider, one of these entrepreneurial types. Um, just those two alone, I think those are are more important. There are others, but I, I'll stop there and, as I think those are really um, useful and easy to implement. Yeah, and when it comes to kind of uh, a readily ident- identifiable individual behind a business, uh, did that individual usually also own a big chunk of stock or was that less uh, of a factor? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I'd say uh, usually they were owners. Yeah. So, and and there's a lot of other research beyond what I did that backs that up and shows you how uh, if you invest where CEOs own at least 10%, you can compare that population to CEOs where they own less than 10% and the owner operators outperform. There's similar research that shows that family-owned businesses, how they outperform businesses that uh, you know, are owned are controlled by hired purely by hired hands without an ownership group at the helm like that. So uh, yes, ownership is important. I wouldn't get too doctrinaire about it because sometimes, especially in our modern economy, an entrepreneur can get diluted out pretty quickly, but still uh, be the driving force behind that business. Still have a significant, almost an entire net worth in the business. And so the incentives are really aligned well there, even though they may not own a huge percentage. And uh, you talked about the ability to reinvest at high rates of return. Now, some businesses are uh, capital light businesses to begin with and maybe don't really have uh, a lot in the way of, of capital employed. So how... Does it work in those cases uh, in terms of the the reinvestment? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think you can look at it just very basically in terms of math. If you're not able to fully reinvest your your profits and earn a higher rate of return, then eventually over time, your return starts to degrade. If you're just letting the cash build up, um, you can pay a dividend, and there's tax usually tax implications there. I'm not saying those can't be good investments. Of course they can. And so this is one of those things where, you know, there's a sort of a bias, for example, in the study, there's a kind of a bias against companies to pay, pay a dividend only because, again, just think about it, to all things being equal, if you have a business that can reinvest all of its profits and continue to earn that high return versus one that has to pay out, doesn't quite have that opportunity, pays out 20% of their earnings in, in dividends. Uh, the difference between those two over time is significant. Uh, and you're much better off with a business that can compound and reinvest and doesn't doesn't have any leakages in terms of either cash building on the balance sheet or dividends. Uh, and there are a number of examples, of course, the number one performing study in the number one performing stock in the whole study was what was Berkshire Hathaway, which you know never never paid a dividend. Um, 
Uh, there have been a number of other top performers that haven't paid dividends either. We have Fairfax Financials and other ones that comes to mind, another kind of holding company structure that uh, has done very well. Although, you know, again, the reinvestment opportunities are not maybe so obvious there because these are also uh, almost investing holding companies. You're, you've got wonderful capital allocators at the top deciding what to do. So you can have two different things there. You can have that capital allocator, you can have the business. But I guess what I would say is that Again, you, the preference would be for, comp- for a company that can reinvest all of its profits. And, but it doesn't mean necessarily that you find something that's capital light, throws off a lot of cash, uh, and kind of has that good problem, uh, and that that can't work out. Of course, it can. But the preference would be for ones that have as minimum amount of leakage as possible and can reinvest all those profits again and again and again. That's where the math really starts to add up. And over a span of five or ten years, the differences become very significant. Were there a lot of um, M&A roll-up or consolidation uh, stories um, that showed up uh, as 100-baggers? Yeah, there were. Um, and some of them were not necessarily lasting. Uh, some of them were. I mean, Danaher, of course, is a classic one that's sort of worked, that's worked very nicely. Um, Valiant is in the study. So Valiant was a 100-bagger. Uh, but... Um, you know, that was one that met with a bad end. And there were there were several others that were like that, that were roll-ups and were very successful for uh, a period of time, but then and then didn't work. Uh, so I don't have any grand sweeping pronouncements to make there. It's really anecdotal. And some of them seem to work and some of them don't. And which ones do and which ones don't, I think might be another interesting case study just to pull out on its own, you know, let's look at all the roll-ups just as its own, their own little class and figure out what are the ones that, look at the ones that worked against the ones that didn't work and try to figure out what were the differences between the two. I think that might be interesting to do. So let's uh, switch gears and and talk about your forthcoming book, How Do You Know? Uh, Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about the structure of the book. I, I see uh, you talk about ways of knowing and then uh, some devices for clear thinking. And mm-hmm. then you have a, a part three. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So how do you know really is a book about how, well, like the title said, how we know the things that we know or how we think we know them. And trying to figure out ways to uh, sort out a little better what we know from what we really don't know. And so as a simple example, there's a chapter about the difference between a fact and an inference. And uh, I have a, a little methodology in there to help determine the difference between a fact and an inference. And the, I guess the point of that chapter would be to show that there are far fewer things, there are far fewer facts out there than you think. Most of what most of the things that we think or take to be facts are really inferences. They're things we assume to be true, but they're not necessarily. They're subject to revision. And so, what I I like this book because uh, you know it's just something that I've been doing a lot of thinking. Grew out of a lot of thinking I've been doing on my own, just about investing in general, about the amount of time investors spend on. For example, uh, big macro questions about the economy, the way we seem to spend a lot of time trying to value the market as a whole, whether we use KP ratios or whatever it is, 
uh, and the amount of time even that we spend doing huge deep dive analysis on different companies where some of these analyses people put together, as you've seen, the 100-page slide decks that are very impressive, uh, and yet sometimes the results are just not really any good anyway. I started to think a lot about this, and at the same time, I, uh, about a couple of years ago, I had discovered a thinker named Alfred Krzyzewski, who was a Polish-American engineer, and he uh, he was born in, I think it was 1879, died in about 1950. And he had created a, what I would call a meta-discipline that he called general semantics. And it doesn't have a great name, but what general semantics generally does, what it's about, it's about the abstractions that we use, uh, the way we use words, and the way we use language, and the way we use labels, and how that uh, can impact our thinking. And a lot of times the labels that we use are not, uh, don't really conform to reality. We use labels all the time as investors and, and we don't give them a thought. We talk about value investors, we talk about growth investors, value stocks. We talk about the stock market, the economy. And these are all really vague, huge abstractions. So anyway, Korzybski, uh, so I use a lot of what um, Korzybski taught. I kind of use his general semantics as kind of the mental model of the basic framework and kind of go through a lot of the problems we have in investing, how we know and uh, things that we know and explore, just explore the limitations of our knowledge. And that's, and that's what the book does. So it begins part one, which is different ways that we know things and, and it kind of exposes limitations, things like, you know, how, what we, basically I say the first part of the book shows things like, why you should distrust sort of cause and effect type thinking, sort of questions asked, you know, why we should not put so much trust in labels, why it's hard, why we can't really see things objectively, all these kinds of things. And the second half of the book goes through a lot of Korzybski's tools to kind of help us unpack those things and keep them straight. Uh, and so I hope uh, what the book will do is just will stimulate a lot of thinking about that about, and we'll get people who, keep this question in their mind. Well, how do you know? It's really one of my favorite questions. Anytime I hear anybody say anything, that's the first thing I think, well, how do you know that? You know, what's, how do you know that? And when you continue to ask that question, you can start to see uh, holes and different or weak points in different analysis analyses. And uh, it's just a good thinking tool. Besides being a lot of fun, I hope. It's a, I, I've set it up, but there's a lot of anecdotes in the book and a lot of stories, and so I hope it will be a good read for people as well. Can you maybe give us an example or one of these um, anecdotes to to illustrate a point? Um, I see you have a, a chapter mentioning Korzybski's pencil, or maybe something else. Yes. Yeah. So sure, like Korzybski's pencil, he liked to use the analogy of a pencil as uh, uh, as something that was uh, full of details that you couldn't capture. So we, we were talking about a pencil, and if you were to describe it, you might say, well, a pencil is yellow, it has an eraser, there's a nick on the end here, it's got a sharp point. But um, what Krasipke would also say about that pencil is no matter what you say about it, you can't say everything about it. Uh, because there's more to it. There's also its relation in space where it is, uh, you know, it's weight, it's so all, all kinds of things. And then a lot of these things are changing over time, even ever so slightly. And so 
uh, Korzybski's pencil is sort of an analogy for what he said was uh, the idea that you can't possibly capture all the things that can be known about anything. And he liked to, uh, he advocated the use of the phrase or the word, etc. He was a big fan of that, even just as a mental device. So even when you're describing something, if I were to describe to you and say, uh, well, General Electric makes jet engines and they make light bulbs, uh, et cetera. So just to, the little et cetera show, well, there's lots of things they do that, I can't cap- that I'm not capturing. And it was just a mental uh, sort of a flag that you would know that there are a lot more details here than are being captured or being described. And that some of those may be very, may in turn be very important. Uh, so that, you know, some of these things I'll say when I've talked to people about it, some of them seem very simple, <laughs> but when you put them all together and you really think about them and they're, they're it's really quite profound, I find there's a lot, a lot of ways to use this, not only in investing, but just in life in general. Uh, so that's, that's one example. Now, when it comes to, to this whole topic of how do we know, there's clearly um, practical applications uh, that we as investors can use, but the topic itself can also get very abstract and philosophical. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, a whole field in, in philosophy, um, epistemology, That's that right. kind of uh, deals with this. So kind of... How did you get your arms around the kind of magnitude of this topic and um, how do you still keep it applicable um, to investors? Well, that's a good question. And I think that's, um, you know, I tend to think of general semantics really as a part of that epistemology. And, um, you know, Korzybski did a lot of the hard thinking on this already. So he has a pretty robust framework for thinking about these things. And there have been a number of, I don't know, followers or disciples who've come along later and they've written uh, books on various aspects of this. Uh, And I've read most of those. In fact, there was one attempt to write about this and use it for investing. And it came out in 1958. Um, It's called, uh, well, originally it was called General Semantics on Wall Street, but they retitled it probably because it was such a dud of a name. <laughs> so they, I think it was called winning on wall street or something, the psychology of winning on wall street by John McGee. And, um, you know, he tried, but his, uh, his was a little, uh, I don't know. It's a little superficial, but, uh, I did read his, but to answer your question about how to get your hands around it. I mean, you have a, I think that's very important. You have to stay away from getting too abstract and try to focus on really some practical ways that we can use some of these tools and think. So in, throughout the book, I have many, many examples uh, of things that are very common in the investing world, but uh, maybe we should think about it. And it gets to th- even things like, for example, extrapolation errors. Uh, you know, why do we make those kinds of mistakes? And I have uh, an example in there, which is famous now, which was with St. Joe's, which is a big uh, land company in Florida. And the bulls made uh, the bullish case for the stock was that you could look at certain transactions that they sold certain acres for, 
And if you looked at those prices and you you could, you know, you could get an implied value for the overall company that was very big, even if you use prices that were significantly lower than what they what they sold. And this was a common argument all through up through 2005, six and and on, and the stock did very well for a while. Um, but the basic error there being made was that people were assuming that you know one acre of St. Joe's land was basically similar to another acre in St. Joe's land, even though in reality those acres are very different. So this is what Korzybski would point out, would finger that word acre. And he would say that that word makes you think that an acre is an acre is an acre, but really all those acres are different. And uh, he had a little tool, just a little subscript that he would use, like acre subscript one and acre subscript two, just to keep in mind that, you know, all these acres are not the same. And so when David Einhorn came along later and and did a short uh, presentation on uh, or did a short thesis presentation on St. Joe's, you know, he actually went much more detailed, but an acre by acre to see what some of these uh, pieces of land were worth. And some of them, you know, were worth just a few hundred dollars an acre versus, you know, 250000 which was some of the sales prices they were getting. So you had a huge difference. And, of course, the stock uh, has come, never really recovered. It's, it's fallen. And and uh, I, I think that's one example of where you can get you can get very abstract in your valuation. And a lot of this stuff, what what general semantics does and what my book forces you to do is to ask questions about really about what you know more specifically, tries to get you to drill down uh, and not make those generalizations or abstractions. So I think investors get in trouble with that all the time. That's an example of company analysis where people get in trouble, but I see it even more broadly where people you know, they'll want to talk about the economy and then they want to make an inference and say somehow that, you know, the economy will impact what the stock market will do. And you're, both of those things are huge abstractions. And when you talk about the economy, you know, what are you really talking about? You're talking about GDP? Well, what's GDP? And GDP is towards monetary transactions. And you can look at GDP. There's lots of things GDP doesn't record or there are things GDP records that aren't necessarily good. You know, I think the old joke was, uh, you know, if you mow your own lawn and your neighbor mows, mows his lawn, then uh, there's no impact on GDP. But if he pays you 20 bucks to mow his lawn and you pay him 20 bucks to mow yours, there's 40 bucks is GDP, even though nothing's been done. So there's all kinds of little accounting things like that that make you question GDP. But I think a lot of this in the book and what general semantics forces you to do is to take down these abstractions and really take them down to the ground level. And it's a little more work to do that, right? Like we talked about St. Joe's again, it's a lot more work to have to go and try to break down the acreage rather than just do a higher level. Well, if we just assume even the lake, if they sell, even if the acres are worth only 50,000, you know, we get this big number. But uh, I think those are important questions that will then could make you a better investor. And uh, we'll clarify your thinking about a lot of these things. So it seems like um, the book really um, both has tools to help us um, think more clearly, but it also kind of sends a a message um, 
it seems that it's much harder to know, to truly know, than is generally thought um, that it is. Mm -hmm. And so if knowing what is is already so difficult, then what's the place <clears throat> for forecasting or predicting? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think that's a really good question. And I think the role for forecasting and predicting becomes a much smaller circle than what people generally um, generally believe. For example, you know, it's very popular to quote the Cape Schiller PE. I've seen that in I don't know how many different investor letters. Uh, but really, what is it? I mean, what what good is it? Well, how does it not, how do you know? That, what does it tell you? You're taking the earnings for the last 10 years and you're averaging them. And then you're saying that gives you reliable information about what's going to happen next. Why? You know, when you look at a company, do you go back and look at what the earnings were 10 years ago and have an impact on what its value is today? Nobody does that. You know, only idiots. If you're an idiot, you do that, I guess. If you go back nine years and eight years ago, do you value a company based on what the earnings were eight, nine, 10 years ago? But that's what Cape Schiller P does. That's what it does. And everybody quotes it. Second thing, of course, is PE is just one arbitrary data point. There's so many other things that tie in and connect to it. The interest rates have an impact on PE. ROE has an impact on, on PE. Those things aren't accounted for in Schiller P. So why would you look at just that ratio, for example? Because it's PhD and economics says it's a good ratio and you should use it. That's what most people seem to do. They put it there. Well, Schiller says it. It's right. You know, so-and-so quotes it's right. You know, one of the other ratios I think is it's remarkable how popular it is and yet it seems to me such a dumb ratio is the market cap to GDP ratio, which... Warren Buffett wrote about once in his letter, and everyone cites it as Warren Buffett's favorite ratio. Well, why? Why should the market cap of the U.S. Uh, why should the market cap of the S&P 500 be constrained by U.S. GDP? More than 40% of the sales of the S&P 500 are out from outside the country. That's something that's changed over the last 20 years. But yet, people continue to parrot this ratio of market cap to GDP. Well, why? How do they know? How do they know it tells them anything? And most of the time, it doesn't tell them anything at all but they continue to just put it out there. And those are two, I mean, there are other examples and things I go through in, in the book, uh, but I think people should really uh, be much more, let's say, humble about what they can predict because they really can't predict anything. They really can't predict very, very little. There are some things you can look at, at you know, Perhaps at a company level, like I think about, a, say you have a financial and you know it has a certain ROE and you have a certain book value and you get a, you get a good sense that this business generates a certain ROE over time and you may be able to make some sort of reasonable forecast of what, of what book value might be a year from now or two years from now. But again, you've got to be really, really humble about those kinds of things. And I think the most thoughtful investors are pretty humble about what they think they know, but not always. I'm, I'm always, uh, you know, I go to conferences and talk to a lot of people and sometimes I'm amazed at what people will hinge their thinking on, you know, on a single number or some favorite ratio. And so, you know, the answer to your question, I suppose, is uh, there is not much room for forecasting 
And but I, but we have to do it as investors. We implicitly do it in everything we do, but we have to do it with a great deal of humility and give ourselves. Uh, you know, that's where margin of safety comes in. We have to give ourselves a lot of room for things to be wrong. When you look at the market today, I don't think a lot of people are doing that. You look at the valuation on many companies. I'm sure you've seen this too. It's tough to find ideas. Many companies ratios. I mean, the pricing is pretty full. It reflects healthy expectations, and it makes it difficult to invest safely now. Chris, uh, in addition to the devices for clear thinking that you uh, have in the book, would there be a way for uh, folks to improve their thinking uh, over time? In other words, can we somehow track and analyze how good our thinking is and then use that uh, to try to improve it? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good question. You know, I I, um, I don't know that I have a good answer for that. I I did give a, uh, I gave a, t- a seminar recently to um, a number of analysts, a lot of I mean, my peers and things in Florida, and I tried to pick out some sort of almost uh, like magic phrases you could sort of, that you could look for and highlight. And, uh, and then over time you would see that you don't fall for those same kind of things. So here's an example is the, uh, the implied, uh, the implied valuation thing. We do this all the time. Uh, even with an energy company, I told you the St. Joe example, but there's another example I have in the book where I use an energy company that had uh, made a sale, uh, a certain acreage and uh, the bull thesis on that stock partially hinged on using that valuation to support or buttress the company's remaining acreage. And meanwhile, there's a huge gulf uh, between between that. Basically, the company sold off some of its highest quality acreage and what remained wasn't nearly as good and eventually went bankrupt. So this uh, in the seminar, I said, you know, anytime you see that word implied valuation or you see this kind of analysis at work, that should be a big flag to say, hey, you know, hold on, let's look at this one a little more carefully or more, more detail. And so uh, I mentioned that only because uh, a couple weeks later, I had heard from uh, one of the attendees that uh, he had seen that kind of analysis somewhere else. I forget what the exact case was, but he was able to flag it. So in other words, he was able to see in this one instance where it did improve uh, his thinking because this is something he might have accepted more at face value before, but now he kind of, it was sort of a flag for him to stop and think about it again and take a deeper look. And so, you know, I don't know if over time uh, after, let's say if you've read this book or even if you just take a few things that we've talked about here and you track uh, sort of how you deal with those things going forward versus how you might have dealt with them before, maybe you see some pattern and you see things that you didn't see before. But I don't know if it I don't know if it will necessarily make you a better investor. I hope so. Um, Well, it does sound like it could help one avoid uh, some mistakes. Yes. There's another one that I think of right offhand. I was trying to think of one, other, another one where it's, uh, 
you know, we spend an, enorm an enormous amount of time debating definitions, which is kind of funny. So I always see um, pieces that basically amount to nothing more than word games. I mean, people will say, uh, 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 you'll read about an article and the guy will make a case, uh, say, he'll say, uh, economics is a science, you know, is it a science or isn't it? Or somebody will write a column about what, what's value investing, or somebody will write about, uh, you know, something like that, where you're basically just arguing over definition, you know, what's money, you know, all or say cryptocurrencies are really popular now. So see comms, well, is cryptocurrency money or is it people debating endlessly whether it's money or not? Who the hell cares whether it's money or not? It's just a word. Money is just a word. You know, it doesn't matter. Cryptocurrencies are what cryptocurrencies are. They are how they behave. They are what they do. They're not, you know, stop trying to put a label on it. And so that's another thing that I think comes out of this book is you, I hope you realize you start to appreciate the limitation when you try to label something. You know, our, we're, our, the world is messy and complicated. And the way our minds work is we want to put a label on something right away because it helps us understand it. You know, oh, well, that's X. You know, this stock is a gold mining stock. Boom, I got a label on it. I know what it is. This stock is a cyclical. This stock is a compounder. This guy is an outsider. You know, and we use these labels, uh, but they really constrain your thinking when you have a label and you just accept it without thinking about it. So, um, you know, one of the things in part when you're doing your analysis is to resist labels and to pierce them, look through them. You know, if someone says uh, or is arguing about a definition of trying to tell you something. Uh, well, here's another example, John. <laughs> Maybe think of, uh, you know, the dot-com boom, for example, when people would... Uh, change the name of their of their company and they put dot com in the name. So uh, you know that's a perfect example of a label. So you had companies that were not really internet businesses, but they would put dot com in their name and the stocks would go up 40% or they double. And this is these are these are you know there's academic studies about this. You can look up you know the power of a name. And then when the internet the tech bubble burst, companies would remove that dot com and they'd go to something else. I remember one of the examples of lawyers.com went to 1-800-LAWYERS and they dropped the dot com name and the stock rallied. Uh, so the labels uh, are very powerful and it's almost like a magic spell. You can get people to accept a label. Um, so as investors, you want to be aware of that. And of course, the examples I just pointed out are extreme and they're funny, but sometimes they're more subtle. And uh, you know, it, it pays, I think it's it's very interesting, and, and it might be profitable to pick to pick out a label that other people believe in, but that you've you know been able to pierce and, and find what the reality is. Yeah, that's a fascinating topic, and I think it you could take that a lot deeper. <laughs> in some ways, it seems our you know we are in a way limited by our language and and every word is a label in a sense and uh it, it kind of shapes how we relate to each other as well as our thinking mm -hmm. yep. so chris uh thank you so much for uh previewing the book and and delving a little bit into this uh hugely important topic um, what, when is the book uh, coming out and uh, when will we be able to uh, read it uh, in full? Yeah, I, uh, I don't have a set release date yet, but I think it will be within the next, say, three months. 
so as soon as I, I get a release date, I'll be telling everybody that, but I don't have one right now. Very good. Well, uh, congratulations on, uh, on the work you've done, and uh, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, share uh, some of the insights with us. Yeah, thank you very much, John, for having me. I enjoyed it. It was a pleasure. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to the Idea Week podcast, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the membership community of intelligent investors. Learn more at moiglobal.com.